Well, this morning we are continuing our series that we began last week and where we're talking about what are we called to do as a church. There are many things that a church can find themselves doing through the course of a week or any given month. But as we established last August that our vision is to bring about reconciliation between God and man, preaching a message of the gospel that gives hope to our community and brings hope to the people that walk in our doors. Although your relationship between God and man is broken, that there is a message of the person of Jesus Christ that brings reconciliation between the two. And also our vision is to bring hope through renewal, that we believe that that the gospel not only has the power to change hearts and minds, but it has the ability and the power to change culture and community as we fulfill our calling to fulfill the cultural mandate here on earth. And so we are a church that brings about, we are agents of both reconciliation and renewal in our world. And so what I want to do this August as we begin a new ministry year is talk about how do we bring about reconciliation and renewal. And last week we talked about one of the foundational things, if not the, the most foundational thing that we do as a church is gather for worship. And this morning I want to talk about the second area, and that is discipleship. That we are a community called to worship, discipleship, community outreach, and cultural renewal. But for the sake of this morning, we are going to be looking particularly as what does it mean for Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church to be agents of reconciliation and renewal here in South Florida to fulfill the calling, to fulfill our calling for discipleship. Disciple, disciple, uh, by common definition, is simply a follower. You can be a disciple of about anyone or anything, but to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be strictly a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. And discipleship, particularly at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, means to follow Jesus in such a way that you begin to grow in your love for God and your love for others. The definition for discipleship at Coral Ridge is to follow Jesus in such a way that you grow in your love for God and your love for others. And our passage this morning is going to be Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And we're going to ask a very simple question. Are you a follower of Jesus? Hear the word of God. In verse 25, it reads, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him to come against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet great, a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you 
who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, know the word of God, it stands forever. Amen. The question I want to ask this morning, are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Not a follower of Jesus Christ as it's been defined by the world or by common culture. Not a disciple of Christ or a follower of Jesus Christ as it's been defined in the 21st century. I want to ask you this question this morning. Are you, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? A follower of Jesus Christ as it's defined by Jesus himself here in the Gospel of Luke. But I want to ask another question. Who in the world recruits like Jesus? Who would ever market to a group to follow after him with this message? Can you imagine a politician? Could you imagine a politician saying, I want your vote. I want your support. And, and let me tell you that a vote for me means higher gas prices, wages go down, taxes will rise, social security will end, and you will see wars that will not cease. Jesus doesn't have the most tactful way, according to our common culture, of recruiting for such a time like this. You ask, what would compel anyone to sign on to the mission of Jesus? What would compel anyone to be truly a disciple of Jesus. But I want to paint a picture for you this morning as we look through Luke chapter 14 of a mission that is defined by Jesus that you've been created for. Because I have no doubt that God has created me and God has created you to sign on to a mission that is so worthy. I believe that God has created me and created you to be a part of a worthy mission, even if that mission is costly. You see, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is on the road to somewhere. He's on a mission himself. You see, where Jesus was heading, he was in... Luke chapter 14, he was on the road to Jerusalem. He was on a mission And what was going to happen in Jerusalem? He was going to Jerusalem to die. And it's on his mission, it's on the road to Jerusalem to face his death that he simply turns to the crowd that is following him and says, do you really want to go with me? You're following a man that is about to be crucified. You are following a man that is about to die. Do you know where I'm going? He's going to Jerusalem on his way to die. And he wants to know who's going with me. Will you really be my disciple? So I want us to look at three aspects of discipleship that Jesus outlines for us here in Luke chapter 14. He defines for us what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to truly be his disciple? And what does it have to do with what we look at, how we look at discipleship here at Coleridge Presbyterian Church? Well, the first thing I want to point out in Luke chapter 14 is that Jesus makes it very clear that discipleship, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, is costly. Discipleship is costly, point one. 
If you look at the end of verse 26 and verses 28 through 30, what does he say? At the end of verse 26, he says, yes, it will even require your own life. And then in verses 28 through 30, he goes through these scenarios. Would you not at first, before you built a tower, count the cost? If you, in verses 20, in verses 31, if you were a king going off to war, would you not at first count the cost? You see, with Jesus, there is no bait and switch. Jesus does not get 10, 10 miles down the road and then tell them what discipleship will look like. He tells them, from the get-go. He tells them from the very beginning, this is what it will be. I want you to count the cost. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ might cost you your life. Are you not going to count the cost? Would a builder not count the cost of building a tower? And would a king not count the cost of going into war? There is no bait and switch. It does not go 10 miles down the road and says, oh, I forgot to tell you, you might be crucified. The other thing I love about Jesus and his recruitment is there are no tiered memberships in in his discipleship plan. There is not, hey, tier number one, you can enter into the martyrdom plan where you might even sacrifice your life. And if you're not up for martyrdom, you might actually then go for the second tier, which is long-term missionary. And then we have another tier, which is short-term mission. And then another tier, which is regular church attender. And then the the last tier, which is the entry level, come to church Christmas and Easter. No, Jesus says there, there are no tiers to being my disciple. It might cost you your life. Will you count the cost? You see, for everyone, for everyone, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ... We must first come to the reality that my life, when I follow after Jesus Christ, is no longer my own. I can no longer say things, I will live my life the way I want, I will marry who I want, I will live the way I want, I will vote the way I want, I will spend my money on whatever I want. There's no longer an option for the one that is called to follow after Jesus Christ as his disciple. Discipleship is costly. In a way, this is like a groom proposing to a bride. Jesus, as the perfect bridegroom, is proposing to his bride, and he's saying, will you be united to me? But he does not say, if you are united to me, I will promise you granite countertops and wood floors. But he says instead, will you be united to me? And the only thing I can promise you is that you might actually lose everything. And Jesus this morning is saying in a proposal to you, come and follow me. Will you take it? First thing we have to understand about discipleship is that it's costly. The second thing we need to understand about discipleship as it's defined here in Luke 14 is that discipleship requires an extreme love. It's a motive in nature. Verse 26, one of the most difficult verses in Scripture to understand, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, I thought for a split second to actually skip this verse this week. This is a hard one. 
If anyone comes after me, you must hate your mother and your father and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters. Now, there's a few reasons this verse seems on the surface is problematic because all throughout the scriptures, we are given a very clear ethic to honor our father and our mother. On top of that, we're given very clear command to love your enemies. So it seems on the surface that this idea of hating mother and father and spouse and wife and children and brother and sister just doesn't seem to jive with the command to love and to honor. But it's important for us to understand what is happening here in the first century, for us to understand the gravity of what Jesus is trying to say. You see, this line here in verse 26 is known as a Semitic idiom. It's a Jewish idiom. And what is an idiom? It was a Semitic idiom that was commonplace in the first century. What are some idioms that are common for us today? We say things like add insult to injury, at the drop of a hat, the ball's in your court, barking up the wrong tree, don't beat around the bush. You see, we use idioms all the day, all the time, every day to add what? To add emphasis. And what Jesus is trying to say here, he's trying to intentionally grab their attention. This is a Jewish idiom for his whole goal in this statement is to say the love that is required by my disciples is so great and it is so deep that I need to know that you love me above anything else. Anything in your life must come first before the love before you make that decision to follow me. In the original Greek, it literally means to love less. Do you love the things of this world less than Jesus Christ? And if that was the reality in the first century, because you have to understand that Jesus understood what his disciples were facing, although we might not be facing it today, although some might, but although it might not be as commonplace as the first century, it was a reality for the first century disciples to be disowned by mother and father, to be disowned by brother and sister, to be disowned by even their spouse. And he wants to make it very clear, and he wants to be sure Do you love me more than all of these? Now that we live in 2017, what is your 21st century version of being asked this morning, do you love Jesus more than these? Do you love Jesus more than popular opinion? Do you love Jesus more than your reputation? Do you love Jesus more than your comfortable living? He wants to know this morning Do you love me more? Do you love the things of this world less than you love me? He wants us to understand that this love, it's a motive and it's extreme. If you were to ask any spouse or any child, when you hear your spouse or you hear a mother and father express their love for you in a way that is passionate and extreme, you know how much that means to you. But you also know that when a spouse or someone in your life says that they love you, but it's not full of passion and energy, you know how that feels as well. 
Jesus wants to know, yes, do you love me with all of your mind? Yes, do you love me with all of your soul? But do you love me with all of your heart? In comparison to everything else in your life, are you absolutely wild about Jesus? And does it show? Discipleship is costly. Discipleship requires an extreme love. And lastly, discipleship is cross-centered. Verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other passages throughout the gospel, actually just in Luke 9, and we preached on this in the spring in the series, The Upside Down Kingdom, Jesus actually says that you are required to what? To carry your cross, to take up your cross. Here, Jesus wants to remind you that discipleship is cross-centered. It requires you to take up your cross. Jesus doesn't just say, take up my teaching. He says, take up my cross. And what does Jesus mean by this? He is getting to the heart of what is known as union with Christ. A foundational teaching that explains to us that our relationship with Christ means this. That if we are in Christ this morning, we share in His death, we share in His burial, we share in His resurrection, and we share in His righteousness. But He says, you cannot come after me until first... You are crucified to that cross. Your desires, your wants, your passions, your dreams, your life, nailed to the cross. The whole world, our culture tells us, you will find life. You will find the true beginning of your life. The more independent you become, You will find life the more freer you are. You will find life when you take life in your own hands. You often hear people say when they feel like life is slipping, life and control are slipping out of their hands and they feel like they're losing control. You often hear people say, I feel like I'm dying inside. I feel like I'm dying a slow death. Don't believe it. No, Jesus says, no, when you lose control, and you allow your life to be mastered by someone else, that's when true freedom and true living begins. But the life that Jesus has called us to as his disciple will never begin until you crucify yourself to that cross. Carry the cross so that you can share in his death and in his resurrection so that you know that my life, now that it belongs to Jesus and following Jesus, is that life does no longer belongs to me, but it belongs to the one who saved me. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I'm crucified in Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me every single day we must take up our cross in chapter 9 as I just mentioned it says not only to take up your cross but I must take up my cross daily every single day the disciple of Jesus Christ must walk and live in the shadow of the cross David Letterman right before he was retired said this in an interview after 30 plus years of entertaining our culture. David Letterman said, every night you're trying to prove your self-worth. 
It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. But if I've come short of that, I'm never happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Because I'm not playing a character, I'm trying to give you the best version of myself. I know what he means. As a preacher, how I preach on Sunday might actually determine how I feel for the next seven days if I don't live in the shadow of the cross. And you know what I mean as well. How you perform as a teacher and a business professional and a mom and a dad, how you perform this week might actually define how your week looks and how your like week feels for the next seven days, unless you live in the shadow of the cross. You must take up your cross and say, the work of Jesus on the cross becomes my work, my righteousness, my death, my resurrection. But I ask you this question in closing. If discipleship is so costly, and discipleship, it requires an extreme love, and a discipleship requires our life to live in the shadow of the cross every day. What motivates a person to follow Jesus like this? What motivates a person to become a follower after Jesus Christ? Because if we're all honest, the original disciples weren't so sold out originally in their mission for Jesus Christ. Until when? When did everything change for the disciples? The disciples went from doubters to believers when they saw their leader hanging on a cross. And the same goes for you this morning. The only thing that will motivate you to live the life that is required to being a disciple of Christ is when your heart is captured by the reality that this leader that we have been called to follow has first laid down his life for you. If you've never seen the movie Life is Beautiful, I encourage you all to see it. It's a beautiful story produced about 20 years ago. It's actually an Italian film that uh, has English subtitles, but it won all kinds of awards. And the story Life is Beautiful in a nutshell is a Jewish-Italian family who are captured by the Nazis during World War II. And it's a story of one man's ingenuity to survive the Holocaust. It's about a man and his wife and their little son. And when they get to the concentration camp, they are segregated. Father and son are separated from mother. But the father is determined that we are going to survive as a family. And I am determined, this father is determined that nobody is going to lay a hand on my son. And so he sits the boy down the first day of going to the concentration camp. And he turns the camp into a game. And he says, here's the game. We're on one team and the guards are on another team. And here's the mission. If they find you you lose. But if they don't find you, you win. 
And it's a point battle every single day. We're going to play this game, son, and we're going to hide, and we're, gonna, and we're, we're not going to be caught, and everything's going to be okay. And guess what happens when you win? If we're on the winning team, you get a tank when it's all said and done. And so the boy really believed that this was a big game. That he just had to hide. That he, At the very end, if he got the most points, he would get a tank. Well, fast forward to the end of the movie. The Allied forces win. And the Allied forces roll in to liberate the camps. And an Allied tank comes by the boy's cell and opens the door and scoops up the boy and he's standing on the top of the tank and he really believes that he has won the game. And he sees his mama out of the corner of his eye and he cries out, Mama, 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 we won. We really, really won. What the boy doesn't know is this was a few days earlier. His dad was led away only to be shot. Little did he know that his dad was led away in one last-ditch effort to save the life of his son. But that boy stayed alive. That boy won the game. He won the mission only because someone else sacrificed their life for him so that he might live and be set free. Corridge Presbyterian Church might meet we make Jesus our mission because he's made us his mission. Jesus says to you this morning, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Who's coming with me? Are you?